Welcome to another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, afternoon Theologian. And here we are again with Season 5. It seems like just yesterday we were starting this thing and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. And here we are with Episode 2 in that season that's even more amazing (laughs) yep 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 but i'm glad that we're going to be talking about difficult subjects because they need to be talked about i think it's easy for us to avoid conflict by not talking about certain things and yet these are the things that matter so we're talking about things that really do matter to us and to our world and so that's kind of one of these cases and this whole season is going to pretty much be like that (laughs) but it, yeah. especially this particular topic. Right, because we talked last week about worldviews, especially in some of the well-known megachurches where they don't talk about difficult subjects. Yeah, they just avoid them. Um, and I have to admit that I have that tendency to want to avoid conflict. It's easy to want to avoid having to say things that are uncomfortable. And yet we've got to, if we're going to present the whole gospel so that people don't get misled down the wrong road and miss out on something that God really wants for them to grasp. Yeah, we talk about the concept of specifically lying by telling something that's not true, Mm -hmm. but we also look at lying by omission by not telling the whole truth. And so you can say, oh, everything's peachy and uh, things are going to be just great. And, you know, what you're doing Mm -hmm. is fine, but maybe not. And you'll make a lot of money if you'll just plant a seed in my ministry by sending me your tithe. That's right, because my ministry needs a new jet airplane. Right. We all know that that's why we get into the ministry. (laughs) Boy, I think somewhere along the line, something went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I saw something the other day that just absolutely blew my mind. One of the ministers, and I don't know where they were in the hierarchy, and I'm thinking, really? A million picture. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that too. It it was on the news, made national news, and I thought, okay, it's terrible for him to have been robbed. That was clearly wrong. There was definitely sin involved, but what in the world? (laughs) But on two fronts. Why would a minister have a million dollars worth of jewelry, and why was he wearing it in public? Yeah, and that's unfortunately when you push the fast-forward button on the video of your mind past all the little incremental steps marching down a wrong worldview, that's where you can wind up with one of these prosperity gospel worldviews, because they say, God must really be blessing me because you can see by all the stuff that he's given me. And you can have that too. So then it becomes just a worldview of greed. And God becomes your sugar daddy. And that's not at all, not even close to what the New Testament's teaching us and how we ought to be able to die to self and put others before self, all that kind of stuff. Yes, he says, seek the kingdom and all these other things will be added unto you, meaning he'll take care of your daily needs. But he never said anything about, I'll just multiply that thousands of times, and you'll have millions of dollars of jewelry that you can wear to show just how much I've blessed you. The Bible doesn't say it. And I wouldn't say necessarily that having material objects is sin. 
Right. But on the other hand, when we look at what's happening in our society and in our culture today, what we're finding is a false teaching that says what the Bible says is sin really isn't. And pretty much any behavior that you want to do is okay. Mm -hmm. And that's another following this thing to its ultimate conclusions. This is kind of where we can get, because it's so easy for us to say, we'll just lump everything into that same category and everybody's covered. So we've got this license for every person because of what Jesus did for us, you know, forgive them, father, all of them for they know not what they do. And so I've died for the whole world. And I don't think that the scriptures tell us that. They certainly don't. No, when we look at what sums up the process of dealing with sin, we look at that Romans 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. We have to think that sin today is still going to be dealt with the way sin has been dealt with since the beginning. Oh, absolutely. And we also can see that evil exists. I think you don't have to look far to recognize that. And that the enemy of God, everything that is against God and everything that is against good is Satan. And he has an agenda. And his agenda is to turn people away from God and God's good order, which is established for our well-being and our eternal satisfaction, and to perversely exchange that for a lie because he comes to steal and kill and destroy. So he wants us to buy the lie that we can put self first, that we can do anything we want to, and we're still okay because we got our ticket punched because of what Jesus did for us. And that's just right out of the pit of hell. When we were prepping for this, I went through and used the tools on Bible Gateway, which is a tremendous set of tools. And I just put in the word sin and death and wanted to see what scriptures came out of that. And there were a bunch of them that have both of those concepts in it. And when we go all the way back to uh, the Mosaic writings, the, the works of Moses back in those first five books, mm -hmm. what we find is that the writings tell us that each of us will be responsible for our own sin. It yes. says that the parents aren't going to be put to death for the children and what they did, and the children are not put to death for the parents and what they did. You know, we will each die for our own sin. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty clear concept that we see working our way through both the Old Testament, and then again, it's really played out in the New Testament. It certainly is. And the very first message that we hear coming right out of John the Baptist's mouth, and then Jesus picks up on that, is repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So repent means you've got to do a 180. You've got to turn from where you are and turn toward God. It comes into play with sin and how we're supposed to see sin and deal with it by accepting God's forgiveness, and that includes repentance. Yeah, and you know, we often look at the, the middle chapters of Romans for some deep insight into what God says about all of this, mm -hmm. and very often we look at the passages that just bend our minds in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Yeah. But he also starts laying the groundwork for that in, you know, chapter 4 and chapter 5. And we look at, uh, you know, even 514, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who was the pattern of the one to come. Because we know that our sin nature comes from Adam. And so we're not going to be absolved because of 
anything good that we do because that sin nature is there and it it becomes very evident to us that if we're honest with ourselves, if we're intellectually honest, if we're emotionally honest, we know that there are things that we've done wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of us have that innate sense. And uh, another one in Romans 5, uh, verses 14 all the way through the end of that chapter are good, but verse 21 in Romans 5 says this, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's presenting the remedy for sin, and that comes through Jesus Christ. And then as we walk through 6, 7, and 8, we look at maybe 6, 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. He took the penalty for everything. Mm -hmm. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You know, that's kind of the foundational premise for how our life then becomes once we understand that Jesus' death means something to us, and as our sin is washed away, then we have a different life than we had before. We do indeed, and that becomes very apparent that there's that juxtaposition between death and life. We can see it in John's gospel very clearly. Paul does the same thing, especially in the book of Romans so that we are literally walking dead people. We're like zombies because we're walking dead in our sin until we have that sin removed from us because we place our faith in Christ. And then he gives us life. And then we're walking alive people. We move from death to life because of what Jesus did for us. Yeah, I even wrote a sermon in one of my fiction books that talks about the undead, the the spiritual zombies that are people who haven't found Christ yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'd forgotten that. I remember it though now. Yeah. Great characterization of it. Yeah. And it was funny because I hadn't thought about it in that way before I started with that, um, Mm. that metaphor and uh, the character who later becomes saved talking to the gal who is a strong Christian who's been taking him to church says, is that how you see me? Is that, you know, you see me as a zombie? And she says, no, I've never heard that illustration before this morning. (laughs) Uh, But the good news is that even as we look at Romans 7, when Paul is talking about the struggle that we all face as we work through those things, how we are looking at our sin and how it makes us feel and the the problem we have in dealing with that justification that comes through Christ's death. Mm-hmm. But then he moves into chapter 8, and his conclusion is so strong. Yeah, chapter 7 ends with, you know, that lament, oh, wretched man that I am, who will absolve me? Who will take me away from this bondage of sin and death? And then you can tell that there's been that huge shift that comes after repentance, because in Romans 8, we get to read, oh, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So clearly, Paul gets that concept, and he puts it forward really well in Romans 7 and Romans 8. Yeah, he starts with, there is no condemnation, and he ends with, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Yeah, a great bookend verse for Romans 8. You're right. I love that. Exactly, and a great bookend of the promise in chapter 6, the lament we have in chapter 7, and yet the victory we have in chapter 8. Absolutely. Well, let's look at a few of the topics that kind of grow out of this process of moving from being dead in our sin to being alive in Christ. We have to acknowledge that sin exists and that sin leads to death. I think that's the starting point. And where does that come from, by the way? Well, it actually comes from 
the garden way back in Genesis, we see things didn't turn out exactly the way that they might have. No. Because Adam and Eve happily living in the garden with, with God, and then the serpent comes, and Satan says to Eve, you know, what he told you isn't exactly right. Mm. If you just take a bite of that fruit, then you will know what God knows. Oh, man. And hasn't that become the number one problem of most sin today? Satan tries to tell us, don't believe what God said about that. You won't have to worry about a consequence for that. And it starts all the way back there. Yeah, I mean, it was a selfish desire, possibly just to eat the fruit because, you know, that fruit probably tastes pretty good. Mm -hmm. And yet it was also, maybe I can know more than I do now. Maybe I can be more like God. Right. And instead, they understood. I mean, the, the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And they knew good. And then they knew evil. Yeah. Oof. Well, we see so much evidence now, just headlines every day about results of sin, because there are so many different types of sin. And they're not just being noticed, they're actually being celebrated now yeah. in ways that we could never have imagined. What are yeah. some of those ways that you can see just coming to mind in terms of watching the news these days? You just look at how everything has become sexualized. Uh, yeah. We look at some of the things that God calls sin, and yet we're called to love the sinner. So when we take that approach, we don't want to be con uh, condemnational uh, right. for the people because we, we love the sinner. Yeah. But when we see what they're doing and we see very clearly that God says these things are wrong, right. and yet... We have Pride Month, we mm -hmm. have parades, mm -hmm. and they're just celebrating these things that used to be taboo. Yeah. You know, it used to be everybody was in the closet because others knew that what they were doing you know, was not a, a lifestyle that led to life. Yeah. And we're seeing it being channeled to children, and those children are becoming younger and younger and younger yeah. to the point that people are saying, oh, well, I talked to my kindergartners about what my partner and I did this weekend. Mm -hmm. It just it just makes you want to go, I, I think you're missing the mark here. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Yes, we will indeed. And I got to say, and because I do care about people, and we know some people who have started to buy into some of this kind of ideology. And I would say, because I care about these people, I'm afraid that we're marching down a road that's going to create a lot of problems down the road, because every time we step outside of God's created order, even physiologically, if we're making changes, our bodies don't usually react well to the changes we're trying to make that go against what God originally established. I think that's just a biological truth. And so I think that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to see in decades to come, so many people who go down a certain road. And they're going to so regret having made permanent changes that many would even call mutilating themselves. And if that's the case, then we ought to care enough to say, oh, folks, please consider what you're doing. Please pray about it. Please understand that we're not trying to be condemning to you. We're not trying to say that we're better than you are. We're saying that if we recognize that the Bible calls certain things sin, 
it's because God wants us to avoid those things that will bring us death. And it could be death of a lifestyle. It could be death of whatever. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical death. Death of enjoyment. It may be that Satan will steal our joy away from us as we march away from God's created order. So the agenda of the evil one is that he's just trying to help everybody accept this hook, line, and sinker without thinking ahead and putting the fast forward button on what happens if you fast forward this ideology 20, 30 years from now? What are we going to be seeing then? You know, when we look at the term that's being um, bannered about but now quite regularly of gender dysphoria, where there's a, a, a real right. issue within the person, the percentage of people who have that actual diagnosis is very, very, very small. Yeah. And yet we see a teacher who will trumpet the fact that she says that 20 of my 30 students are trans. Yeah. And you go, there's something else at work here. Yeah, there has to be. I mean, you just can't not notice it. It's so apparent. And we want so much to be compassionate in how we speak about that because we do care about the sinner, but we have to call sin, sin. And when the evil one is trying to keep parents out of the loop so that dangerous and eventually harmful information can be freely spread to younger and younger children, I've got to think that that's an evil agenda. And I can't think that that comes from the Holy One. It doesn't come from God. No, because we've already seen what he says in his word about those, those topics. What, what's another one of the, the things that's being celebrated these days? Well, you just have to look at any of the stuff on TV, especially commercials and what they're advertising. We're really worshiping self. I mean, you get people who are personified as having more power or influence or great looks, according to society. And there's gambling apps that make it look like, oh, man, you can have a whole casino right in the palm of your hand and you can win all this money. And think about the fame and the fortune that you'll have and the great friends that you'll have. All that can be yours. Or the quick loans, get what you want, but get it now, even though the loans are at 25% or 30% interest rate and people can never pay them back. Everything that's being hawked to us in commercials really exalts self. And we want to become little gods in our own minds and in the minds of other people around us. When I was with the chamber, we have a, a member who was actually the casino that's on the Indian reservation not too far from us. Mm-hmm. They were so excited to have one of those apps become available to them because the legislation had been changed and they were able to use one of those sports betting apps that would run the money through their casino, mm. not just in their little area, but across the state. So right. if you were within the confines of the state of Colorado, even if you were way up in the northeast corner and they're way down here in the southwest corner, you could still run money through their casino and win all this fame and fortune uh, simply by placing a bet on the casino app. And it it just is crazy. And then you see like today, uh, at the time of that we're we're taping this, one of the super lotteries is over a billion dollars. Yeah. And I heard a news reporter just two days ago say it's approaching. I think then it was like 600. Now it's more than that. But she said, And just to keep things in perspective, you should be aware that you'd have a greater chance of being killed by a swarm of bees than you would winning this lotto. Literally speaking, you really don't have a chance. Most people just really, really don't. And yet people 
I see them lining up and you can tell by the amount of money they're shelling out that they're probably spending an awful lot of that week's paycheck. And you got to think is gambling itself wrong and terrible. I would have to say, maybe there are opportunities for people to say, I'm going in with 10 bucks in my pocket. And once it's gone, it's gone. And that's entertainment. I personally don't see that as entertaining to me because I worked hard for that money. I can't stand putting anything just down a black hole, but I think that it's preying on people, especially who have addictive personalities. It's no accident why all the casinos are lavish and lush and they have great, wonderful furnishings because they always win. It's always going to go in the house's favor. So yeah, I think that worshiping self and glorifying all these things that we think are the accoutrements of a life that's successful, that leads us down roads that are not healthy. Another friend of mine calls the lottery a special tax on people who are bad at math. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. A special tax on people who are bad at math. I like that. You really have to be pretty bad at math to think that you're going to really come out ahead at any of that. Yeah. Um, Joy and I also were watching as I'm thinking about the ways that these perversions of things that we would, the Bible would just call sin and that we lean toward that and push that fast forward button on an ideology. There's this movement now in our country, in America, of anarchists. And I started watching a series about anarchy. And one of the guys who has been hawking his ideology and saying, oh, yes, but we think of anarchists like this, and they show people throwing Molotov cocktails and looting and all that stuff. And he goes, but we're not like those kinds of anarchists. We're the good kind. That's like saying, I'm a white witch. I'm not a a bad witch. And there are things like that, that we can think, okay, but push the button on your fast forward there. And where does that lead us? Well, he says, we're, we don't want to be slaves to anybody. Okay, slavery is wrong. I admit that. But what's what slavery are we talking about here? He says, we just want to be free to do what we want to do. The problem with that comes in that all of a sudden, somebody else's freedom starts to encroach on your freedom because they say, I want what you've got. I'm going to come in and take it. And because I'm free to do that, I'm an anarchist. You can't tell me I can do that. I'm going to come kill your dog and your cat. I'm going to steal your daughter and take her away and do bad things to her. But hey, I don't have any slavery. I'm free to do whatever. So you push that ideology to where it's going to go, and it's nuts. It does not look good for society. And I think there was a, uh, a fictional representation of that end game mm-hmm. that we saw. And I believe the book was called Lord of the Flies. Yes, I remember reading that in high school. Mm-hmm. And it was not pretty. Not- did not end well for the inhabitants of the island. No, they didn't just march around and say, we're going to have a socialistic, equitable society here where each of us can do the things that we're good at and supply the good for the rest of the people on the island. It turned nasty and it was horrible. And I kind of think that was the author's intent to show us that the evil and selfishness that lies inside each of us turns us into animals and worse when there are no boundaries, and when we remove any kind of moral margins on society, and those margins should come from somewhere, and we keep saying they come from God's character. That's how we even get our judicial system. That's where it originated. So it all keeps coming back to God. There has to be some sort of a God who created this and created an order in which we can live so we don't turn into the Lord of the Flies. 
Well, we talked earlier about missing the mark. Mm -hmm. I like that when we look at the the words that are translated into sin in English, and there is one yeah. of those in, in the Greek, I believe, that, that yes. translates to missing the mark. It does. I believe if I'm remembering my Greek correctly, it's hamartia or hamartia. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it came from some of the early Greek influences, and it was a fatal flaw leading to the downfall of a tragic hero or heroine, and it was literally missing the mark. Yeah, so there's a an archery metaphor there. If we look at, at what archery originated as, it was a way to capture food, a way to create a weapon that would sling the arrow far enough and fast enough that you didn't necessarily have to beat a deer to death with a stick. But they soon realized that this hunting tool could become a weapon. Soldiers could bring down other soldiers of the opposing side, mm -hmm. again, at a greater distance, the Roman era, the Greeks, the Spartans, all of them had as part of their arsenal phalanxes of archers that would send arrows raining down, raining down, and and hence the the tactic of putting the shields not only in front but over the top of the soldiers as they were, were lined out there to protect them from the rain of arrows. Right, and it became a very effective tool. And we look today at some of the compound bows. Oh, that man. even a small child can use and send that arrow at a huge rate of speed mm -hmm. you know across the forest into the deer into the elk into whatever the animal is and it can be a very fearsome weapon we can also see a nice competition in in the olympics we see the archery mm -hmm. competition and mm -hmm. they stand at great distance and there's a target down range and they want to hit that 10 ring because that's the key but even so they'll still miss the mark. You can mm -hmm. be really, really close and still not have a bullseye. And I think that's the metaphor we see for sin in the New Testament as we miss the mark of what God intended. Mm -hmm. And if we do, then the Bible says we have missed the mark, we have sinned, and now we are worthy of death. And there's the kind where you think, well, I just wasn't quite good enough, and so I missed it that way. That's almost like even an unintentional sin, perhaps. But then there are these transgressions that are much more willful. You know, yeah, I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and then there's just downright wickedness, and there's different kinds of words in the Bible for that kind of sin that says, I'm going to be absolutely defiant to God, and I oppose him, and I have become his enemy. So it kind of moves from yeah, I just missed it a little bit, but I was close to, I willfully aimed in a different direction until, no, I'm actually his enemy, and I'm actually aiming at God now. It's a whole spectrum of sin, but all of us have sinned, so there's none of us that could escape that and say, yeah, I've hit the bullseye every time. And, and this whole concept was not something that surprised God, because we knew that even before the foundation of the world, Christ was being set up to come at that certain time and pay that penalty. Yeah. But society in general has really, really missed the mark. And what we're seeing is, I think the only thing we can call it is a death culture. Yeah. You know, everything that they're doing is moving towards physical death mm. for human beings. It's really being played out in so many different areas of culture so that you can see that we are devaluing life at every turn. It's becoming an ideology. I mean, people calling for 
the elimination of vast portions of the current population. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that makes its way into mainstream media, Marvel Comics Universe, Endgame, Thanos or Thanos, mm -hmm. who with the snap of a finger was going to destroy half of all life across the entire universe. Granted, the Avengers would play out the whole story differently and where everybody comes back and a very happy ending from all of that. But the idea that a single entity would destroy half of the life across the universe mm -hmm. was being celebrated in this film. And unfortunately, there are ideologies at play in our world today that devalues human life because we want to protect other kinds of lives, which is why I think there's just so little hope for so many. And so we see our suicide rates have gone up significantly. If people don't value human life all that much, life's not valued. Hope doesn't exist. I've got nothing to look forward to. I'll just take my own life. Drugs are a way of escaping the feelings that are a part of life, unfortunately, because we all have a myriad of feelings. And the only way to get through certain kinds of feelings of sadness or grief or despair is to feel them deeply and move through that. We need to learn how to incorporate lament into our lives and learn how to deal with those feelings, knowing that they are temporary, but that there's life at the end of that, and that there's joy still and hope available for us. So drugs are rampant, of course. Abortion. I know that a lot of people would have tried to say back along the way there needed to be certain situations in which that ought to be legal. I know that's a huge debate. And yet it has really turned into just another form of whatever is uh, convenient for many. I've been talking with missionaries in third world countries, and there are some horrific things happening to young ladies, and some of that's cultural. And so they would say there needs to be some opportunity for this lady to take care of certain medical needs biologically if certain things happen to that young lady. But however we define when life begins, we need to understand that the Bible wants to get us back into valuing human life. And it's been redefined to the point in which uh, it really devalues life. And I, I suspect that certain politicians that would have clearly and easily voted for certain things that they voted for would be very upset if we were to do to their pet, dog or cat, some of the things that are being done to human beings. I think they'd be very upset. And it comes because we have so anesthetized ourselves to the fact that these are human babies inside a womb and that people can talk about it as though they are just tissue or it's just a fetus. And I loved what one guy did, uh, one of the doctors that we've been watching through the pandemic, he's uh, in the UK. He said, let me just kind of lay out for you biologically from a medical standpoint, when we start developing certain things and you make the determination on when you think life begins. And he started showing how these pieces of information would be sent to different cells so that there would be the cellular division that happens immediately and that there are enough pieces of information in those cells to immediately start creating exactly the kinds of things in our DNA that would cause me. He said, so there I am. I am only four cells now, but that was me. I had everything present in those four cells to be me. And I became me because that started. We need to define human life as that which God thinks is precious because all life is created in his image. Yeah, we were talking about the ideology that devalues life. I mean, there are those who would say that 
the perfect number of people for the world to sustain is about 500 million. Hmm. But there's approaching 8 billion people on the planet. So you have to think, who's going to decide which 15 out of the 16 are, are going to be eliminated so that that one out of 16 would be able to thrive? It's the point where Okay, now we have assisted suicide, where mm -hmm. if somebody gets a little too old, then they're just going to have a doctor come in and end their life. Yeah. The end result is that if you're no longer productive, if yeah. you're not adding to society, then you are no longer valued. And so therefore, you should just die. Right. And there are certain countries that some folks in our country would point to them and say, yes, we need to be more like them. But if you look into their elderly population. There are some that say, I'm afraid to grow old in this country because there will come a time when it'll become a bottom line decision. And they'll say, you don't have enough money left. Everybody is contributing to the well-being of everybody. And we don't think that you have the quality of life that's worth sustaining by expending any more resources. So you're next up on the list and it's going to be your time to go. I see that in juxtaposition with a good friend of mine that I have coffee with almost every week. This guy's in his 80s now. He's been caring for his wife who has Alzheimer's. He's been the full-time caretaker for her. This guy is an amazing example of what happens when you value life. And he said, yes, we can't communicate in the same way, but I have committed myself to her as I did at our wedding, that till death do us part, I'm going to care for you because the two have become one. It's like caring for myself by caring for her. And she's lived so long physically, even though she has not much left mentally because of his care for her. That to me is so selfless instead of selfish. That's what God did for us in Christ Jesus. It's like a picture of the gospel. And I think that by valuing life and laying down our lives for others, instead of always just building up what we think is important and what will make us feel better, I think that's what God tries to get across to us in the Bible. Well, and I, I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head there because God's stance towards human hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. He still loves them with every ounce of his being. He still wants the very best for each and every one of his children mm -hmm. who he knew before the, he laid the foundations for the world. I mean, that God's love is so strong. It is why he did everything he did. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, his stance towards sin hasn't changed either. Right. It hasn't. He calls sin, sin. He still sees us as missing the mark. And that's why he let play out all of those circumstances that allowed Christ to come at exactly the right time so that he could die on the cross to carry our sins, shed his blood for that forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And yet he still will hold people accountable for what they did with that gospel message. And he has to based on his character. He would not be a just God if he did not hold people accountable to their sins. For God to judge rightly, he has to hold people accountable for sin. But because he's loving, he also provides a way out. And that's why we get the Old Testament illustration of the ark as a solution to the problem. And it's not just a metaphor either. It's an illustration because it really happened. And so it serves as something in history that shows us that God did foresee a way out. And he provides that as a way out through Jesus Christ. Right. And when we look at the ark, we see very few of the people were saved at that moment. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was Noah and his family. And if we move further a little longer, we see the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
where again, God had judgment on those cities. It wasn't worldwide at that point, it was more contained. And then as we get a little further and we look at Christ's work on the cross, it becomes personal, a one-on-one -on -one kind of a thing. You know, our sin is responsible for our own destruction. And that's why the work on the cross was so important. I had a wonderful meal with a guy that told me his testimony, his story, just a couple of weeks ago. And he said that he was attending a Bible study back in college where he met his wife. They've been married now for, I think, a couple of decades. And he said that he was so antagonistic toward everything they were talking about, that he was one of those oppositional atheists. And he was just trying to trip them up at every turn. And they were all patient and loving with him. They wouldn't fight back with him. They would just respond by pointing him to different scriptures and showing him what the Bible says about the things that he was bringing up. And he said, finally, after several weeks of that, the guy who was leading the study started to go around the room and he goes, now, you can pass if you don't want to pray. And all you have to do is say, I'm going to pass. And that's totally fine. But if you want to pray, then you can just pray. And that's how we're going to close out the session today. And he said, so I was thinking in my mind, oh, I've got some good stuff that I can throw into this prayer, boy, howdy because he was going to be oppositional even then. He said, I was going to say something like, God, if you even exist at all, you would have already known what's going to be coming out of my mouth. So prayer is fruitless anyway. So this is just a fruitless exercise. And he said, but when it started to get right to him, he opened his mouth and he said, I just couldn't restrain the Holy Spirit's work in my heart any longer. And what was coming out of my mouth was accepting Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. He started praying, God, I see that everything that we've been talking about is true and that you are real. And he said, that was the last thing that I expected to come out of my mouth then. So it literally happened in a split second. And he encountered a living Lord that's so powerful that his spirit would do something in his heart and change his attitude in that moment. And that's why we want to love the sinner, but we have to call sin, sin, and we have to present the way out, which gives us hope, which is the gospel. And that's why we're doing what we're doing today. We can with great confidence say that despite what the world tells us, sin is not okay. Right. God's stance on sin has not changed. He still hates it. He can't be in the presence of it. Yeah. And that's why we need the Savior, because he set everything in place, because his love is so great that he sent his one and only son. He didn't do it to condemn us. He did it so that we would be saved. And it's quite likely that there are a number of our fellow theologians who, like the person you just mentioned, need to take that step and verbalize their need for Christ in their life. And some of our fellow theologians may need to say, I need to come to that point of repentance because there are things in my life. I could say that right now. There are things I need to repent of because I'm still not holy. I still have things in my life that are issues. And so we might want to do that two-pronged prayer that we often do for mm -hmm. those who would like to take that first step into relationship with Christ, and those who need a little boost, who need to uh, come to the point where they say, I want to live the life that Christ died for. Amen. I love to do that. I'll lead us in that. And just before I do, I will say that in one of those anarchy shows that I was watching about a guy who is a proponent of anarchy, he said, uh, we're tired of living in bondage. And I thought, oh boy, that, 
that connected with me about what Paul talks about in the New Testament about bondage, because what Paul realized is we think we want freedom, but the freedoms that the evil one leads us into is actually just bondage in another name. And so those freedoms that we think we crave, that's when we're in bondage. We're in bondage to sin. And what we get separated from is that kind of bondage when we finally turn to Christ. And that's when we can get to, from Romans 7 into Romans 8. You see, now there's no condemnation through those who are in Christ Jesus. That bondage is blown away. And we find that our true freedoms come as we place our identity in Christ. He gives us our identity. And, oh, man, it, it's such a night and day difference. So I will lead us in a prayer, a sample prayer for somebody, if you're ready to take that first step and just say, yes, I'm ready to start following Jesus. So you could say something like this in a prayer. God, I recognize that I have wanted to call things freedoms. It doesn't make sense that everybody could do whatever they want to without any consequence. I realize that now, and I recognize that I am a sinner. Your Holy Spirit has convicted me of the fact that I have done things that I'm sure have been outside your will, outside your boundaries, and that have broken your heart. And I want to confess that sin to you, and that I have a sinful nature, and I need to turn myself over to you for forgiveness, not only of all the previous sins that I have done in my life, but knowing that you will continue to forgive me every time I sin because I can confess sin and you are faithful and just to cleanse me of that sin and of every unrighteousness. You promised that to me. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for answering my call for salvation by coming into my life through your Holy Spirit, who will guide this process of transformation so that I'll become more and more like you. And I thank you for that. Thank you that you will be faithful to continue that work in my life until I get to see you face to face. And I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for that second group of people, that would be you fellow theologians who might think, you know, there is some unconfessed sin in my life, and I know that I haven't been really walking as closely with you as I could, and you could pray something like this. Dear God, I want to recommit my life to you in a way that I'm more sensitive in my spirit to your spirit. I want you to convict me of sin early enough before it becomes destructive in my life, because I recognize that the agenda of the evil one is to help me wink at sin or to just put up with it or to not take it seriously. And yet I understand that all sin leads to different kinds of death, some physical death, but there are many other kinds of death. And I don't want that. I don't want to be a walking zombie living with sin in my life that I just have continued to walk around with. I want you to remove that. And I want you to have victory over that sin in my life. And so I give that sin to you right now. And I want you to be the one to guide my life so that anytime I feel that temptation, those fiery darts of the evil one, that you will extinguish them quickly as I turn to you. And as I breathe your name, because there's power in the name of Jesus, and that you will help set me on the right path again, as I continue my daily walk with you. Thank you that even though I can slide into bad behavior and sinful behavior, you're so quick to meet me where I am when I'm honest and admit my sin to you. Thank you for that forgiveness. I can feel the weight lifting even now, and I want to continue to live my life for you 
so that I can be an example and people can see you more clearly lived out through me. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And as often as we do that, we are cleansed. The Holy Spirit is able to, to renew the work that God has given us. Being in a right relationship is the best place to be. Yep. What a gift that we can be. Absolutely. We sound like a couple of preachers, the way we're talking today. Yeah, you'd think that we were kind of fundamentalists, the way we come back to these same uh, topics all the time. I tell you. Maybe we should just start tickling people's ears with what they want to hear. I'm sure we could get a much larger following, yeah. <laughs> but we'll hit the buzzer on that one because we know that the narrow road is the one we have to stay on. And the wide road is the one that leads to destruction. Yes. So says the Bible. And so even if just a few people hear and respond to the Spirit's prompting, if the Spirit's reaching in and stirring your heart and saying, yes, this stuff about sin and consequence and God's made a way out, this is real. Then if there are just a couple of folks that hear that and respond, I'm happy. Well, and that's where revival starts. And fellow theologians, thanks for hanging in there. I have a feeling that if you've hung in here this far, all the way to the end of this episode, you must be attracted to something in what we're saying. Even if it disturbs you, I'll be preaching this coming Sunday at my church about King Herod Antipas. And even after he had John the Baptist arrested, he still used to go and listen to him preach because he was somehow attracted to the preaching of John the Baptist, even though it disturbed him spiritually. And there's that inner struggle with all of us. We're attracted to God, and yet we don't want to give up certain things that we think we might have to give up if we turn our life completely over to Him. Just give in to Him. He's got your back. He'll give you the best life possible, even if what you have to give up is something that's precious to you now. It won't even appear precious to you after you have realized what's truly precious, and you're living in real freedom with Christ. Amen. Sermon over. There we go. <laughs> and we hope you'll look at some more good resources that we have freely available to you on our website. That's mondayafternoontheologians.podia.com. And please hang in there with us next time for the next episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.